This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes medical billing easy, fast, and pain-free. Spend your time on patient care. Let us handle the billing for you. Dr. Bill is now available for free. Visit drbill.ca. It's dr-bill.ca and get started today. I'm Dr. Sarah Newberry, and I'm a rural generalist family physician in the community of Marathon, Ontario. I'm also a member of the CMAJ Editorial Advisory Board, and it is my complete pleasure to be a guest host on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm joined today by Dr. Chris Patey and Paul Norman. Chris is a rural generalist physician, and Paul is an RN in Carbonier, Newfoundland. They've co-authored a commentary that outlines how they redesigned the rural eMERGE department that they work in, in order to prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic and maintain the priority focus on both keeping their staff and their patients safe. Their article is published in CMAJ. Welcome to both of you. Thanks very much. Uh, It's great to be here today. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here as well. I'd like to begin by asking each of you to tell me a little bit about what you do. And so, Chris, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, So, Sarah, I'm um, much like yourself. I think I'd like to be working in marathon and doing full generalist practice. I am a family physician who practices emergency medicine is how I like to call it. I've done this for probably the last uh, 15, 16 years, and I call it my mid-career, actually. I've always loved the frontline ED. Uh, it's quite a bit of variety, the pediatrics, the independence. To me, it's, it's what keeps me alive, I think. Uh, and I still do love the continuity that happens in general practice. For me, I think the teamwork that exists on the front line is key, and I think that's where we brought Paul into this discussion as well. I will uh, say that I am a assistant professor at Faculty of Medicine Memorial, and they're quite supportive of this, and that I do have uh, some pretty uh, spectacular family behind supporting me through this uh, COVID time. Uh, Liam, Bella, and Daniel, three children who are superheroes during the COVID isolation. Yeah, certainly I recognize how much we're asking of our families as we move through this time. And Paul, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm a, I'm a, like Chris, work in the front line. We work in the same emergency department. I've been a nurse for about 13 years. I have been working both uh, in the ED and in critical care over that time. I love to bring in the perspective to, to the conversation, especially lots of times we don't merge as physicians and nurses to have that conversation where you can bring nursing perspective into that into the conversation. So it's great for the organization to be uh, allowing us to have uh, have a presence here as a nurse to be able to, to give my share of what we uh, what we put together for uh, our staff and patients that are coming to our hospital. And like Chris, I have uh, three superstars as well. I have three children. Ryan is 10, Lorelai is 7, and Blair is 10 months. So it's a busy place at my house as well. I imagine it is. Well, thank you again both so much for doing this as, a, as an interprofessional team. I think that's terrific. Paul, I wonder, just to provide some context for CMAJ podcast listeners, I wonder if you could tell me about the town of Carbonier, the population your hospital serves, what your hospital is like, and, and what your staffing resources are like. Yes, we're, uh, we're in the eastern part of Newfoundland, Carbonier and the surrounding area, like most of uh, Newfoundland, it's settled on the coast. Rural lifestyle for sure, and uh, but also for us, we're we're, we're uh, only about 90 minutes from the uh, from St. John's from capital city, so it does uh, function as a commuter town as well, where people can swing out. So we get we we get a little bit of the feel of uh, the fishing communities as well as the as the like I said, St. John's metro suburb as well. Population of about 40,000 pa- patients come to uh, are in our catchment area, and we have a really high geriatric uh, population. So one of the oldest areas I think in the, in the country uh, per capita. 
our hospital is a community hospital. We have 80 inpatient medical surgical beds with six ICU spaces. Uh, in our ED itself, we have eight stretcher spaces and three uh, high turnover exam spaces that we use. We call it our stream centers where we, uh, where we keep the uh, ED flow uh, happening. There's one primary care physician who staffs our ED 24-7, as well as we have, uh, due to ever-increasing demands on our system, we've added in a, uh, we call them our hero doc. They do double coverage shifts uh, in the evenings. Uh, and there's two to four nurses uh, working on our, throughout the day, depending on uh, our volumes that we've, over the past couple of few years. Uh, and one nurse practitioner who works uh, Monday to Friday in our department. Sounds like it's a it's a busy interprofessional department, and that's really really terrific to hear about. I wonder if you could share from your perspective as well why it's particularly challenging for rural hospitals like yours and like mine, and for rural clinicians to prepare for a potential surge, the kind that we're anticipating may emerge with this COVID nineteen pandemic. For us, especially in, in the smaller centers, uh, there's a limiting limited staff resources out there. Um, in the, in the rural areas, and we're not prepared for a large surge of critically ill patients. Our, our systems just weren't designed to deal with uh, with high levels of very sick patients, and uh, we often have complicated uh, referral patterns. And in Newfoundland, especially, we have a very large geography that separates us from from uh, different hospitals. So diversion uh, to other care is really difficult. And in our area, especially of the country, there's been an ongoing primary care physician shortage which has really put an impact on our ED. And also combined with that, there's also a nursing shortage as well. So it's difficult to recruit nurses and physicians in our, in our rural hospital. And for us, I mean, it's, it's and like a lot of rural places, it's difficult to make changes like trying to rewire a, an airplane in flight uh, with the limited resources. And I think healthcare in general is probably slower to, to adapt to uh, technology and things than other industries like the airline industry or the banking industry of, have kind of streamlined some of their processes and, and been able to use technology in a bigger way than what uh, healthcare has to this point. So I think that's uh, that about sums up probably where we are as a uh, from a rural uh, Newfoundland perspective. I think you've really hit on a lot of the issues that are challenging for many rural communities: the geographic isolation, the challenges of health human resources. And I think many of our rural communities are also faced with one of the issues that you mentioned early on, which is an aging demographic. And, and I think as we anticipate some of the challenges around those who are likely to be our sickest patients, that aging demographic is also a, a real particular challenge. So thank you for highlighting those issues. Chris, I wonder if I can ask you to outline for listeners what you actually did in your hospital to prepare to manage the potential surge in COVID-19 patients and what the, the pieces of that are that the rest of us might be able to follow in the model that you've created. I think from our perspective, and I, I really want to put this up front as well to say, you know, I, we kind of want to say up front, we don't have all the answers. And I think things are changing so quickly on this uh, COVID front that uh, we, we just really have to continually regroup and look at things. Uh, and we've always said that once you've seen one emergency department, you've seen one emergency department. When you've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital. And in rural, rural centers as well, we have different dynamics of how things work. Uh, so our solution may not be everyone, but we try to keep it broad in terms of what we think is the most essential things to do to, to address COVID. Um, and we did actually uh, attach on our CMJ article the, uh, an appendix uh, called Steps to Maintain ED Flow Through the COVID Pandemic. Um, and it really highlights some of those broad categories, I think. For us, uh, the number one thing, I think, from a rural perspective is being proactive. Uh, 
And I will speak on behalf of Paul, I think, from this as well, and saying that you really got to step out there and say, in this, in this pandemic era, the front line are the ones that really know what's going on. And a lot of things that happen uh, are going to impact them directly. So it's important to get those involved and to be proactive. Um, I really do believe as well, we got to accept the fluidity of the situation that this is something that tomorrow, that you make a decision today, that tomorrow is probably not the right decision. And we've got to, and that's not always easy, especially for administrators and frontline, because these unknowns and these changes, these frequent changes often are difficult. It's, it's a stressor that really impacts that. Um, so really being proactive, accepting that this event is fluid, getting engaged with your administration and ensure that your administration are online with your decisions and helping you make those things. Um, and, and you really have to recruit your frontline to be play an active role in this. The top-down phenomenon that happens sometimes uh, in organizations is maybe not the right decision right now when you realize that some of these decisions will have to change. Uh, so true collaboration, I think, would be the, uh, be the big component for me in terms of minimizing the impact on frontline staffing. So teamwork with nursing administration, uh, and even from our perspective, we brought in the researchers in our tertiary centers to say, hey, can you help us answer some of these questions, help us get this knowledge out? And we had a brilliant team of research, uh, uh, Shabnab Azagari and Olive Hurley, who have been, uh, been supporting us as uh, primary frontline researchers to get our message out. So I really appreciate that. Chris, I, I really do want to highlight the appendix to your commentary because I think the way that it's laid out as goal, action, and outcome, or from my way of thinking, sort of the why, the how, and the what, is really, really helpful as a, a rural generalist thinking about our own eMERGE department. I uh, really want to encourage listeners to go and have a look at that. When you think about all of the work that you've put into your plan, you've mentioned a couple of things like the importance of collaboration and really hearing frontline providers and what makes sense to them. But I wonder if there are any other details of your plan that you think are particularly unique or particularly critical to its success. I think you, you really have to get in the mind of the frontline and saying, um, when, you're, when you're talking about the stress of this COVID and what happens, there's a lot of change. Uh, and change is not easy. Change is not easy for a lot of individuals who've done things uh, in their past years, done everything in the same manner they always have, and all of a sudden things are changing that impact them and possibly their families' lives. Um, so, from our perspective, we really did have a we had a culture of change in our emergency department, and that's been ongoing for the last four or five years, where we've really addressed flow and really got into that. So, uniquely, our emergency department is ready for change. They've accepted that. For the but for those rural emergency departments that maybe have not made any significant changes in the last number of years, these are difficult times. Uh, and I think uh, really approaching that concept with the front line and, and saying to them, you know what, I understand that this may be a difficult time for everyone, uh, but really getting on the ground with them for that. So if you can delegate someone on your team, maybe to have to manage the mental health initiative, someone to manage all the uh, information that flows continuously to us through emails about how to actually manage COVID, really find true leaders. And I think uh, once you find those in the front line, it's good. We did have a little unique thing we called SurgeCon, which we have used, which is really a surge capacity software that uh, we've been recently awarded a CIHR grant for um, that really addresses how busy our emergency department is and, and connects a lot of people uh, frontline uh, to the administration. So that's probably one of the unique things that we've used to really uh, make changes on our frontline. 
Thanks so much for that. I, I really want to congratulate you on the ability to acknowledge how very real the fear and the threat is as a critical component of the success of your plan. I think that's it's really helpful to hear that articulated in the way that you have. Paul, I'm going to turn to you, and it's a little bit along the lines of the issue of, of fear, and I know that we're hearing from many, many healthcare providers about concerns about personal protective equipment and the threat that nurses and physicians and other frontline providers feel around having to face the possibility of COVID-19 without adequate personal protective equipment. And I, I wonder if you could speak to what you've done in Carbonier to optimize personal protective equipment usage. Absolutely, this first of uh, first of thought for most of the of the uh, staff in our ED is the question of uh, how can we conserve the PPE that we have and and how long will it last? So far, we've we've done well to to keep a, a supply to be able to protect our staff. Uh, but I guess that was probably the driving force that that got us pushed to uh, to immediately uh, enact some of the redesign changes that we made. So separating our patients who had respiratory illness from the general patients that normally visit our ER was, uh, you know, the idea that was that we would, we would uh, have a hot and cold zone basically in our ER. So that in the hot zone, we would wear PPE uh, at all times. And then in the cold zone, we would uh, we, we'd be able to uh, minimize the usage of PPE and, and that, you know, just mask the patients and, and uh, as the risk was much lower. So being able to separate the, the ER in, in that way, um, respiratory, non-respiratory definitely help to minimize the, uh, the amount of time we spend in, in PPE and, and help use our resources. Also, um, in our hospital uh, recently, the uh, Health Canada approval to sterilize our own individual N95 masks. So uh, we, we haven't uh, actually started using them yet, but the approval is just recently came by. So we're hoping that that will be something that can uh, help the N95 masks last longer so that they're going to um, uh, sterilize them in a procedure at our uh, Medical Device Reprocessing Center and uh, send them back to us in our own individual uh, N95 masks that are marked for us. So that's, that's really helpful to hear. And I, I really appreciate the thinking around the hot and cold zone and the way that that can optimize the way that we use PPE through the day. And also your commentary about the reuse of PPE so that we can conserve the supply that we have. I think those are really important things for all of us in our eMERGE departments and our hospitals to be thinking about. Chris, at this point, do you have any positive cases of COVID-19 in your area? I think if you speak on a broader picture with Newfoundland for us, we had a pretty unfortunate cluster that happened at a funeral home where there was a significant number of people impacted. And I believe at one point it was probably one of the largest cluster anywhere in the country. Uh, so we had some really tightening of our measures early in the process. Uh, we did have some cases that had come through our hospital here as well. Uh, and I think uh, when we had that case to come through, I think it really brought it front and center for us. So for those hospitals that may have not had their COVID yet in a rural center, uh, for us, that was a, a, a pretty pivotal turning point when people realized that this is uh, likely coming our way and how best to address it. I'll just jump in real quick. Luckily for us, we had already enacted a, our plan redesign before the cases from that cluster started showing up. So you'd already implemented some of the changes that you had uh, planned for before those cases arrived. And then when you had those cases, did it change the way that your staff engaged with the plan or understood the plan that you'd put in place? 
Yeah, I mean, from our angle, I think it instilled quite a bit of compliance um, and uh, the concept behind the isolation and quarantine and decontamination really came to light quite quickly for us. Um, so we moved beyond just hygiene, washing your hands and coughing into your elbow to the idea of where do we decontaminate really quickly. So I think where the steps we've gone to now is into more of forced early simulation events. So simulation events on the floor, mock codes, that kind of concept where we get our whole hospital in terms of dealing with flow of COVID, how we move patients through our hospital, and what happens if a patient arrests on the floor that's potentially COVID. Uh, so simulation events are key for us right now. Uh, and because we've had those early, I guess you would call them scares or early presentations. You know, I, I feel like we are all learning as we go as we move through this COVID-19 era. And I know here in Marathon, we've implemented some several changes to our hospital facility as well. And as we've encountered various clinical scenarios, we've had to course correct. And I wonder beyond, um, beyond some of the simulation work and the flow through the rest of the hospital, whether you've um, encountered other issues that have led you to readjust your core emergency plan and approach. Paul, I wonder if you'd answer that. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I think some of the things that, that have came up for us are, that have caused our, us to readjust and think about things differently, you know, it almost seems to happen so often that it happens by the hour. Um, you know, we, we've had the same code blue team in our hospital for about 30 years, as far as I know. Um, we, we had a, uh, and we've recently had to redesign that whole, that whole team because uh, it included some uh, hospital-based paramedics who, uh, who we can't have now uh, in full PPE in case they have to go to another call. So bringing those guys out of the uh, Code Blue team has been a, a significant challenge for the, for the whole organization. So it's, it's those kind of things that really uh, cause you to adjust and, and puts pressure on the team as well because, you know, just like the paramedics uh, understand they also don't they were happy to be part of that team they love being able to help out and pull in a different way uh and so again they're not they're not happy to be to be left off the team now and, and, and so it's, it's 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 dealing with that kind of stuff as well it's not only just the uh the adjustments to keep patients and, and staff safe we also have to deal with things that people were were comfortable with and used to and really enjoy the part of their work and maybe sometimes that's changed and so you have to deal with that and and talk people through it and be, be supportive and, and thinking with that as well and so do you, as you think into the future, you, you've mentioned sometimes the need to tweak and modify things hour by hour, but do you, do you foresee any major changes in the future? Maybe the major change down the line is how do we close the plan and shift back to, to what was our normal before? But I wonder if you could comment on any big changes that you foresee. For sure. I mean, one of, one of the things we're, we're coming on coming upon now is as we uh, we, we grapple with the idea that, um, you know, we, we have a very, a very small staff in number. If we have a, a spread of disease through our staff, what would happen to the ER and how would we, st how would we continue to work? Uh, so, so just thinking about that has caused us to start re rethinking, uh, you know, questioning our supply of PPE and can we increase the use of PPE so that we're, we're taking extra precautions to make our staff safer. So something that we're, we're grappling with now, as well as right now our, uh, in our respiratory zone, it's, it's for, we, we, we are mainly putting our low acuity respiratory illness patients. So patients who are stable and, um, and not requiring oxygen therapy and those kind of things. So, so we do foresee it, as the uh, cases uh, increase that we may have to flip the ER and make the current respiratory area the, right. the uh, general ER and make the respiratory 
year, our main year. And so I, we've definitely talked about when we would have to make that decision and, and how that would work. That's all, it's all really dynamic. And, and that scenario planning that you talked about in terms of staffing and the, you know, if this, then that kind of thinking, I think is, is really important. And it sounds like you're building that into a very dynamic process as you go. Chris, I wonder if we can talk for a moment um, just about the challenges for rural healthcare providers in particular. In your commentary, you'd made specific reference to the need to support rural healthcare staff and the challenges that they may face, not only in the hospital, but also in the community. And I wonder if you might elaborate on those issues a little bit. Uh, yeah, sure. So, Sarah, I mean, I, obviously you're working a marathon, you're feeling that kind of world as well. Um, I mean, I think for for any any location where you're far from a tertiary area, um, you're realizing at some feeling you may be at the end of the line a bit, uh, and that things happen to you last, or you get the knowledge at the last moment. Uh, so uh, that end of the line phenomenon sometimes leaves people feeling a little isolated, a little bit not able to make decisions. Um, so the geography itself is is a big thing that comes up with us for rural. And when you look at the geography, you go. So what happens when you have to make these four-hour transfers of a patient with COVID to a larger larger emergency department or a referral center? That is an intensive stress for a number of individuals who may have to consider that. Um, and there is a burden that is carried, I think, by, by healthcare workers who are working in the emergency departments and these patients come in. And I think more often in rural areas where there isn't a critical care emergency doc who's going to come respond, uh, where there is one and two call schedules, uh, where you're realizing if one person gets sick, that individual may be on call for an extended period of time. Uh, so there is a, a lot of emotional support that has to come in, in this in this process. For me, uh, when you you just have to look at numbers, we have three anesthesiologists now, and you kind of go, well, what happens if one of those were to get sick? So there is there is problems I think that exist in rural centers that maybe not happen in tertiary centers where there is larger call schedules. Um, and and as well, some of the you often have the question, where are decisions being made? Often decisions are happening in tertiary centers that filter to rural areas, and those decisions may not apply to rural hospitals. So it's imperative, I think, first off, I think that uh, anyone on the front line, their voices should be heard, and decisions should be always in their best interest with that patient included, and that any decision that uh, may increase the burden should always be reexamined and ensure it's the right decision. Uh, because uh, sometimes those are in, in provide a lot of mental stress and anguish for the front line. When I think about those things and I think about the commentary uh, and the appendix to the commentary, it's really clear the degree to which your plan has been designed with the goals of supporting frontline staff, providing leadership to frontline staff, decreasing fear and anxiety, minimizing burnout. I, I feel like that focus on how we move through this together as a healthcare team really comes through very strongly in the work that you've done. And, and again, I think there are lots of really important um, lessons that all of us in rural environments can take away from your work. I want to thank you for joining me today. Really want to acknowledge the extra time that it takes to not only do the work of restructuring an entire eMERGE department, but to have the foresight to put that in writing and to share it in ways that we can all benefit from. So thank you for your work and thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. I think uh, I'll just put in a little few positives there. Engage tertiary centers early, get your supports early. Uh, I also put in there for the SRPC, the Society of Rural Family Physicians, they have a beautiful listserv, which has been really supportive. 
And I, I, I also want to add about engaging researchers. Uh, we would never be in this podcast today if it wasn't for our, our dedicated team of research, Dr. Shabnam Azagari and Oliver Hurley. They worked with us in realizing the stress and burden that we were under to develop this document, uh, and uh, they were essential in this process. So engage researchers who have uh, may have some time right now to dedicate to this to continue improving frontline. Thanks so much. It really is a, all in this together, and it takes a team to get all of this done. Thanks for having us. I've been speaking today with Dr. Chris Patey and Paul Norman of Carbonier, Newfoundland. To read the commentary that they co-authored, please visit the cmaj.ca website. We also have a special page dedicated to all of the CMAJ COVID-19 content, and you can find a link to it in the podcast description. Again, my name is Dr. Sarah Newberry. To all of our CMAJ podcast listeners, stay safe, stay brave, and thank you for listening.